0: let's open up a word of prayer and we can get into our lesson for today dear heavenly Father Lord we come to you and we just give you praise Lord once again for an opportunity that uh, we have to come together as a church body to uh, hear your word to uh, fellowship with one another Lord to worship together just thank you for uh, the times that we can come together and encourage one another and pray Lord that we would be um, Just honoring to you, Lord, with our our speech today, with the things that we talk about, and just pray, Lord, that uh, uh, this would be a morning that would glorify you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for uh, the truth of uh, just everything, Lord, that you revealed to us. We pray, Lord, that as we dig into this study this morning, that you would give us understanding into uh, one of the topics, one of the things that we are anxiously awaiting, uh, the rapture. And Lord, we just pray now that you would give us understanding, and pray, Lord, that uh, this would be a time that would honor you. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, a couple weeks ago, we finished our study in the book of Daniel. And in our study, we spent a lot of time, obviously, looking at end times events. And in looking at those end times events, we spent several lessons looking at this slide. Next one. Not this slide, this slide right here. This one should be familiar to all of you. This slide here relates a lot of detail that is given about these events, starting from the standpoint of Daniel's 70 weeks, which we saw in Daniel chapter 9. Now, just as a refresher, in Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and tells him about God's 70-week plan, which was not 70 weeks as we think of weeks, but it was a 490-year plan. The weeks, as I'm sure you all remember, they were weeks of years, and they pertain to what God had planned for, it said there, Daniel's people and the holy city, which he started off in verse 24 of Daniel 9, telling him, "...seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city." To finish the transgression, to make the en- an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to-, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And we hold to a literal interpretation of what Gabriel tells him in that passage, which I believe anyone studying God's word ought to do. Daniel, this is for your people and your holy city. Who were Daniel's people? And what was the holy city? It was Israel, and it was the Jews, the city of Jerusalem. Now, this shouldn't be new to anyone that was here for our study in Daniel. We covered all of this when we went through chapter 9, and I've referred to it many times since then. So the 70 weeks that we see listed here uh, were weeks that God had planned out in his dealings with the nation of Israel and his plans to restore them back to the blessings that he had promised them long ago. Now, one of the things that we really didn't spend much time with, and we do see it indicated here, it's not listed out, but you see the little hook, the little fish hook there, um, was that hook there, and we also see the brownish gap that represents the church age. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about the church age either. This gap in time is the church age, a period that comes after the Messiah is cut off at the end of the first 69 weeks of those 70 weeks so seven weeks and 62 weeks, um, which Gabriel mentioned in verse 26 of Daniel 9, and finishes prior to the final 70th week, which we commonly refer to as Daniel's 70th week. So that's what the picture indicates. It's during that 70th week that all kinds of fun happen. And when I say fun, I am being extremely facetious because that period will not be fun at all for anyone that lives through that period. Antichrist comes... Israel is put through the worst ringer they have ever experienced. The judgments or the wrath of God will be poured out upon the world in that 70th week. And at the end of that time, we will have the return of Christ to earth, and he will establish his kingdom upon the earth in the thousand years indicated over there. Again, if you've been here for our study, none of this should be new. But the question comes up, and some of you have actually asked me this question What about the rapture of the church? Are we going to deal with the rapture of the church in our study of these events? Well, in our study of Daniel, we didn't. We didn't talk about the rapture. Why didn't we talk about the rapture? Well, the simple reason is, and I'll get into more detail of this as we go through this today, but the reason is that the church is not in view in the events of Daniel. If you look at verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9, what it says there, and you can turn there if you want to, but I'll just read it. It says, then, the 62, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Um, so right there, and I didn't finish verse 27, but right there, between verses 26 and 27, what do we have? We have a gap between those two weeks, between those yeah, those two weeks of time, the 69th and the 70th week. We have events that ended shortly after Christ's death and destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And then we have events that will kick off the tribulation with the antichrist's covenant with Israel, which is something that hasn't yet happened. So why is there this gap? Because the events of the church are not a part of God's plan for Israel. This is why we have a church age gap. And the rapture is a taking up or a departure of the church. I made some references in our study of the last few chapters of Daniel uh, to the events of the tribulation from the standpoint of it will be a horrible time for those who go through it, but for us, anyone in the church here today, we won't go through that time. And that is because of the coming of the rapture that will come prior to those events that occur in that 70th week. So what I want to do today is spend our time talking about the rapture. What is it? Maybe it's something that you're familiar with. Maybe you've just heard of it. Maybe you've heard that there is no rapture. Since we here today are a part of the church and the rapture is an event, actually it's the next event, aside from death, that we are awaiting in the church, I want to take a look at it and what it means for us. And we'll see how it applies to our events that we studied here in Daniel as well. So to start off, what is the rapture? What does the Bible say about the rapture? Well, To answer that question, we're going to start in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you turn to First Thessalonians 4. Now right off the bat, I want to address one criticism of the rapture that people often use. If you're new to this discussion, if the rapture is something you're not really familiar with, or have never had conversations with people with other views on it, this argument can sometimes throw us if we're not expecting it. So I'll just bring it up first. People will sometimes come up to you and say, you know, the rapture isn't in the Bible. And you can look high and low for rapture in the Bible, and you won't find it. That's what they'll say. Well, they might bring it up first, and they might say, do you know that the rapture isn't in the Bible? Well, then we might turn around and we say, well, sure, the rapture's in the Bible. Here, let me grab my lexicon, and I'll look through it, and I'll find rapture. Where is rapture in the Bible? And guess what? They're right. Rapture, that word, rapture, is not in the Bible. You won't find rapture in the In the Bible occurs zero times in zero verses in the New American Standard. But don't be fooled. The idea of what we refer to as the rapture is most assuredly in the Bible. It's just that that actual word for rapture is not used. And I'll get to why we use the word rapture. Why do we call it the rapture here in, in a little bit? But what is the rapture? The rapture is the first phase of the second coming. When Christ returns for the church to take the church up from the earth, and they will meet him in the air. And I would say, although others disagree, but I would say that he even takes the church back with him then to heaven. There are other views that say that that doesn't happen. So if the word rapture isn't there, why do we call it the rapture? Well, we find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now the book of 1 Thessalonians is Paul writing to the Thessalonians in response to report that he has gotten back from Timothy. He was concerned for them. He sends Timothy to encourage the Thessalonians, and Timothy brings back a report to Paul. And Paul writes this letter, at least partially, in response to what Timothy tells him in his report, including responding to some questions that they had. And some of that response back to them is what we find in the section, starting in verse 13 of First Thessalonians chapter four. So look down at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So here, Paul is answering a question about those who have died, those who are asleep. There is a a term for believers who have died when he talks about those who are asleep. The body is asleep because the spirit of the person is no longer in it. It's a really a beautiful picture and reminder of what death truly is for the believer. And that's what Paul's point is here. And that's what he says next in verse 14, where he says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so we don't grieve for believers who have died like unbelievers do. Because we know that believers will rise again, be in glory for all eternity with the Lord. That is the hope that we have as believers. We will rise again, even if we die. So he's talking about them, uh, talking about the dead. Now, why is he talking about the dead? Well, at the very beginning of verse 13, he said he didn't want them to be uninformed. And there's something um, that they were confused about, something they had questions about that Paul is writing to explain to them. And we find that starting in verse 15. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So what's this? Well, it's a promise. He says that's by the word of the Lord, that when the Lord returns, those who are alive won't go before those who have died. Paul has evidently taught them about the coming of the Lord. He didn't do it earlier in this letter, so he must have done it when he was with them, when he established the church back in Thessalonica, back in Acts chapter 17. So they understood that the Lord was returning, but what had evidently happened between then and the time that Paul wrote this? So Paul's with them in Acts 17. He talks to them. He tells them that the Lord is going to return, but then something happens. Time has gone by, and some members of the church had evidently died since that time. So here they're waiting for the Lord to return, and all of a sudden, Joe dies, Mary dies. Some members of the church died, and their question is, what about them? We were waiting for the Lord to return. He hasn't returned. And now people have died. Well, Paul tells them, we who are alive and remain, the ones who are still here when the Lord returns, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We won't go before they do, before the ones who have died. So he's giving them comfort here, trying to encourage them and let them know that those that died aren't going to miss out on what happens when the Lord returns. So, with me? Everybody with me? So now we get to verse 16, where Paul tells them what will happen and what order it will be in and what this means for them. And I still owe you an explanation on the word rapture. I know that, so I'll get to that. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here in verse 16, Paul tells an event, tells of an event. The Lord returns, he descends from heaven, it says. There are three things that he mentions that happen here, three things that mark this event. There's a shout, there's the voice of the archangel, and there's the trumpet of God. The specific details of those he doesn't really get into here the shout would indicate some sort of military military command or order but we're not told what the what the order is what is what's what's in it paul doesn't say maybe some of these things are combined people would say perhaps the archangel michael is the archangel we saw him in our study of daniel maybe he shouts out the order while the trumpet is sounding in a militaristic type fashion But we don't really know. But these things will be involved at this time. These three specific things will mark this event. Now what happens when they do? Paul says here, which is the point he's trying to comfort the the Thessalonians with, the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ. Who are the dead in Christ? These are the ones who have died believing in the gospel of Christ. Christians. They're the very people that the Thessalonians are concerned for. Those who are part of the church have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and have died. They're the dead in Christ. And it says they will rise first. At this point in time, there will be a resurrection of the church age saints. All those who died from the beginning of the church age, starting in Acts chapter 2, will be resurrected to meet Christ when he returns at this point in time. Now, that's not all that happens. That's just what happens first, what happens next. We'll look at verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, here we have the rest um, of what happens to the church, those who are still alive, right? There's There's only two classes of people right those that have died and those that are still alive we saw the dead in the last verse and now we have those who haven't died now note what takes place here we are caught up together with them who's the them the dead the dead were raised and they went up into the air with christ then we who are alive and i'm including us in that because here we are, we're all alive, right? So we would be in that group, at least as of today. We are all still alive. And this can happen really at any time. So we who are still alive will also go up and join them in the air with Christ. And you note in this verse that this all happens in the air, right? Christ has not returned to the earth. At this point, he is still in the clouds. He is in the air. We will meet him in the air. That's what Paul says here. Now, we are caught up with them. And you note that phrase, caught up. That is our word. That is the rapture. Really nothing more, nothing less than just a word. The Greek word is the word harpazo. It's not an English word. It was written in Greek, right? The Bible was originally written in Greek, This is what I was saying before that people bring up. Rapture, that word, isn't in the Bible. Well, the specific English word isn't in the Bible, no. But being caught up or being snatched away is in the Bible. Harpazo is in the Bible. We just read it right here. So why do we call it the rapture? Where does that word come from? Well, it's from the Latin word translated from harpazo, raptura, and when the Bible was originally Translated from Greek into Latin, that was the word used. Now, I don't mean to get into a linguistic lesson with you here, but since there is so much controversy surrounding that one word, it's really best that we at least touch on it because people do bring this up. Harpazo is a word that means to seize or to carry off or to snatch away. Most English translations translate it as caught up which is probably what we see here in everyone's translation. The idea being that people are taken from down here, where we are, and we're brought up there, right? Because in the context of the verse there, we will be here and we will be caught up and we will be with Christ in the air. So we're here, then we'll be there. Um, So they're caught up, they're snatched away, they're raptured. If you want to use different words for it, use different words for it. But that's what rapture is. So when someone says that rapture isn't in the isn't in the Bible, just smile and nod and agree with them, then explain to them that we will be caught up to the clouds together with the dead in Christ when the Lord returns. Personally, I think that uh, using that argument to say rapture isn't in the Bible is somewhat silly, right? We, I could make I could make the case that the word faith isn't in the Bible. What do you mean? Well, I could get out my Greek New Testament and I could show you. All the words in the Greek New Testament, the language the Bible was originally written in, and I say, see, you do not find the word, the English word faith anywhere in these pages. And people would say, well, that's silly because it's translated to the word faith, right? You translate that Greek word to faith. Well, yes, that is a silly argument. Just like harpazo being translated as raptura, being translated then as caught up is kind of a silly argument as well. So just so you know, the word harpazo is used in other places in the New Testament. We won't take the time to look at them, but in Acts eight thirty nine, Philip is raptured, if you want to use that word. He is? Yes, he is. In Acts 8, Philip witnesses to and baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. In verse 39 of that chapter says, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. Snatched away, harpazo, is the same word used. Philip was there, he was coming up out of the water, then Philip was gone, he was someplace else. The next verse tells us that he was in Azotus. So from the context, it's apparent that it was an instantaneous thing, that in an instant, he finds himself in another place. He's here in the water, and then all of a sudden, he's someplace else, which I believe is what the believers will experience at the rapture. When the Lord returns and we are caught up to him in the clouds, then we will instantly be there with him. I, you know, we get all kinds of ideas in our heads about the rapture. Are we just going to start floating up in the air or how we're going to do? I don't think that's what it's going to be. I believe it's an instantaneous thing. Sitting at home one minute, being at work one minute, hear the shout, the voice and the trumpet, then in an instant, we'll be with the Lord. You can also jot down 2 Corinthians 12, 2 and 4, as well as Revelation 12, 5 for other instances where the word harpazo, uh, same word we call rapture, are used. Those passages aren't talking about the same event. They're just used to indicate someone again being snatched away. So that is what the word rapture is. The rapture of, is that time when Christ has descended from heaven... There's a shout, there's the voice of the archangel and the trumpet sounds and the dead rise first, then those who are alive are snatched away from here and end up with him in the clouds. That is the event. Now there's more that will occur at that particular point in time that Paul doesn't touch on here because his point here is simply to reassure the Thessalonians of the order of events. He's trying to reassure the Thessalonians that that the dead won't be left behind. But for more of it, turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives a few more details about what will happen. And while you're turning there, let me just say that we are going to get into a discussion of the timing of the rapture. If you're familiar with the rapture, you know that the timing plays a crucial role in the discussions around the event itself. So don't worry, we're going to get there. I just want to make sure that we know what it is first and what are the details around it. Because what it is plays a crucial role in knowing when it will occur. So in 1 Corinthians 15, towards the end of the chapter, look down with me at verse 51. Verse 50 talks about us being changed because we won't spend eternity with God in bodies of flesh and blood. So in verse 51, we see this. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So here is a little more detail of what happens when we're caught up, when we're snatched away. Not everyone will die, but those who are left will be changed. And you know what he says in verse 52? We have the same order of events here. He talks about in the same order, without the same details of the event itself. But keep in mind, Paul's purpose here is talking about resurrection. His encouragement to the Corinthians is almost the complete opposite of what he was trying to encourage or comfort the Thessalonians with. The Thessalonians were worried about the dead. What happens to the dead? Here, Paul is trying to reassure those who are still alive about what will happen to them if they don't die first. This entire 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians has been talking about the resurrection from the dead. So what if we are still alive when the resurrection happens? What if we are still alive when Christ returns? The trumpet sounds, and I'd say that's the same trumpet that you see in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the last sound that occurs there. Remember, there's the, vo- the shout, the voice, and then the trumpet, and then instantaneously, in the twinkling of an eye, is the words that he used here: "The dead are raised." That's the first ones. First ones again. Then we will be changed. So you have the trumpet. You have the dead changed to glorified bodies, and those alive are changed as well. In the twinkling of an twinkling of an eye, in an instant. After that point, we will be with the Lord forever, it says. Here in verse 50, it says we are changed so that we can inherit the kingdom of God, live with God for all eternity. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, so we shall always be with the Lord. Once again, there's a permanency here that we see here. These are not the only rapture passages. John chapter 14. Turn over to John chapter 14. Jesus is talking to his disciples in John chapter 14. And in the first verses, starting in verse 1, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also." He tells them, don't be troubled. Very much like Paul is telling the Thessalonians and even the Corinthians, right? He's telling them these things to reassure them, to comfort them of something. He's preparing a place in his father's house. This is up in heaven, right? I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is not here on earth. This is up in heaven he's preparing this place. Keep in mind, he's not talking about the kingdom here. The kingdom will be set up on earth, at his second coming after the tribulation when he left to do this again where does he go he goes up to heaven he's not on earth he's in heaven so he went to prepare dwelling places if he if he prepares it he will come again and receive them so that they may be with him right this is the same picture The same event is in view here, Jesus preparing a place for the church for those whom he will return for, for whom he has prepared a place. There are mansions prepared in heaven in which the church, you and me, all of us here who are believers in Jesus Christ, and all those who have believed in him will live in when he returns to take us there. Christ will return to take the church back with him to heaven. That is the picture that's in view here. If, as some say, when Christ returns, he is staying here on earth, and we are staying here on earth, then the question comes up, why is he preparing places for us to dwell someplace else up in heaven? That just doesn't equate. Now, the place that he is preparing for us is for the church to dwell in when we have been changed. So just to recap, that we've seen several things here so far. We see Christ promising to go and prepare a place in heaven for those whom he will receive to himself when he comes again, taking us back to be with him where he is, not him coming to be where we are. We've seen that he will descend from heaven into the clouds, and with a shout the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ then have died will rise from the dead. Then those who have believed in Christ, who are still alive, will be snatched away, and we will be all there with him in the air. And we've seen that when the dead are raised, they are changed to imperishable bodies. Those will be glorified bodies. And as those who are still alive as well, when that last trumpet sounds, both the dead and the living will be be given imperishable glorified bodies. That's what we saw in 1 Corinthians 15. What? Just to clarify, sorry. Just uh-huh. to clarify. So this is not where we go when we die, pre-rapture. This is pre-rapture, right? Yeah. So this, so this is all in the church today, pre-rapture. So from rapture to what's that? From rapture to coming back down. This is where we go in John 14. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And then She's coming back for us at the rapture, takes us back to the places that he's that he's prepared. Yeah. Now one more place to look. Turn with me over to first to Philippians three. In the third chapter of Philippians, Paul is talking about living for Christ, pressing on in our sanctification, forgetting about the things that are in this world, right? I I think of that as having a horizontal view of things, the things that we see around us, forgetting about looking at these things, instead being focused on the things that lie ahead, having a more vertical or God-focused view. So look down at what he says in verse 20 of Philippians three. He's kind of concluding this, wrapping this up. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So what does Paul say here? He says that we are citizens of heaven. That's where our citizenship lies. That is where our focus should be. That's kind of the point he's trying to get across. But note what he says about being citizens of heaven. We are eagerly waiting for what? Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our bodies, the humble state of our flesh, into conformity with the body of his glory. That is his glorified body. By his power, he will change us. So Paul is telling the Philippians here that that is what we are eagerly waiting for. This is the same thing that he was talking to the Corinthians about, 1 Corinthians 15, which is the same event that we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The time when he will return in the clouds, snatch us away from here, and transform our physical bodies into glorified bodies, which will be then be taken Where? back to where he has prepared a place for us to dwell. Okay, so these are all the things that are going to happen when the Lord returns for the church. The next event that we are waiting for in the timeline of events that God has laid out for us in his word. That, as the church, is what we're waiting for, what we're anticipating. Now that we know what it is, and what we can expect to happen when it happens, we need to talk about when will it happen? Now, when I say that, I'm not going to give you a date. So nobody think that I'm going to give you a date of when it's going to happen. But what I mean by that is, when will it occur in relation to other events that we know we're going to take place in the future? As you may or may not know, there are three main views on the timing of when the rapture occurs. And the reason I went into so much detail on the events that take place around the rapture are in anticipation of discussing Uh, These views. Now, I'm not hiding anything. If you look at the diagram again, and uh, and the timing of the rapture that I've been talking about here, and to which I refer to several times in our Daniel study, I say that the rapture will take place there before the 70th week of Daniel, prior to the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. I believe that, I'm not hiding that, and as a, as a church, we hold to that here. Providence Bible as well. We call this the pre-tribulational or just pre-trib rapture view. It takes place prior to the seven-year tribulation; hence, the name pre-trib, right? Pre-before. So, with this view, Christ returns twice. I put twice in quotes, or returns in quotes. The first time he returns, he doesn't fully return but he comes back for the church so there's the little fish hook that we have there he comes back for the church um he doesn't fully return he comes back for the church his bride in the air which is as we saw in that first thessalonians 4 talks about it It refers to the events in the air the shout the voice of the archangel the trumpet then we are raptured um what can you go back to the other one what's that does it have a mind of its own? Okay. Anyway, I mean, I don't, yeah, so. <laughs> then he returns to the earth at the end of the tribulation, seven years later, so there at the thousand years. So he comes back with the church at the end of that time who has been up with him in heaven for seven years. So the church has been in heaven for that length of time, and then at the end of that time, when he returns, he comes back with the church. Um, the church has been up in the mansions and the dwelling places that he told the apostles he was preparing in John chapter 14. So that's really the pre-trib view. It's a very condensed nutshell version of it, but we'll talk more about it. But there's also the post-trib and the mid-trib views. And from the names, it's, it's easy to guess when those that hold to those views um, believe that the rapture is going to occur. Post, after, post-trib, they say the rapture will occur at the end of the seven-year period. Um, And that's at the same time as Christ returned to the earth. They would hold that there is no indication of Christ returning twice. That the next time he returns, it will be to gather the saints up in the air. So people are gathered up in the air when he returns. And then they come back down with him and defeat the Antichrist and then set up his earthly millennial kingdom. Um, And they see those events occurring really at the same time. The mid-trib view... Uh, bases its view off of the midpoint of the tribulation. And if you remember our Daniel study, we talked about the midpoint a lot. Um, There's a lot of significance around that three and a half year point of the tribulation, the midpoint when Antichrist will break his covenant with Israel and he will turn on them and then things will get really, really bad here on earth. So there is kind of a turning point there. Um, It's the start of that period that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, where he says that if the days weren't limited to only three and a half years, and we saw in Daniel 12 that he made an oath by the Father that they would not be for any longer than that. But if they were any longer, then no one on earth would be left alive. That's how bad this time period is going to be. So the mid-trib view holds that the church will be raptured just prior to that happening. The church is taken up before the great tribulation, the entire uh, seven years being the tribulation, the last three and a half, the great tribulation. Um, Let me just point something out here. Some today say that they don't believe in the rapture at all. Um, And personally, I think there's a little bit of word wrangling that goes on around that. Um, And I'm sure that there are some people who don't believe that there is a rapture at all, just as there are some who say that Christ isn't going to return. There are some people that would say that there won't be a coming kingdom. But in what we would consider evangelical camps uh, who do believe in the return of Christ and who do believe in a future kingdom, to say that there is no rapture, um, I, I think that's a little bit of word wrangling. Um, to say that you don't believe in the rapture means that you don't believe that believers will be taken from down here on earth to meet Christ in the clouds. That part is literally what the rapture is. That's what we looked at in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4. So if you don't believe that, then there's a big problem with what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It literally says those who are alive will be caught up and meet him in the air. Now, I call it word wrangling a bit because those that say that, I don't really think that they don't believe what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 they are really expressing their views on what comes after that meeting. Um, what they're saying is really in line with what we would call the post-trip view, uh, that believers are caught up with Christ as he returns, but at that time they are gathered with him as a victorious army, um, and then they return with him as he comes to earth to defeat the armies on earth um, in the events that we see in Revelation chapter 19. So if that's their view, then that is still the rapture because the rapture part is just the believers joining him in the air, being caught up with him in the clouds. Whether then we go up to heaven or come back down to earth is really irrelevant because those things take place really after the rapture. So don't be confused by word wrangling from what I've seen. Um, Those that hold that view really are talking about a post-trip view, at least that's what it seems in my estimation, now, all those views can't be right. Pre-mit, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, how do we know which is the right one? Well, pre and post are the predominant ones. Mid is kind of the, if I can call it the red-headed stepchild, it's not as common and it kind of confuses some things. But I already stated that, that as a church, we hold to the pre-trib view, so in the time that we have left, I want to give some reasons why the pre-trib view is the correct view. And I'm not shy in saying that, I hold to that view because I believe it's the correct view of Scripture. So I'm going to call it the correct view. Um, so I've got five reasons why I believe it's correct. And we'll, go, we'll try to get through all these in the time that we've got left. Uh, just so you know, these five are not um, exhaustive or inexhaustive. They're not complete, right? John Walvoord posted years and years ago 50 reasons why... Uh, the pre-trib view is the correct view. I'm not going to give you 50 reasons. I'll give you five. We'll try to get through five. We've got 20 minutes left. I'll try to give you five reasons why the pre-trib view um, is the correct view. Uh, but I'll cover with you the list that I have. So the first reason goes right along with what we've been studying in Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel is not for the church. It's for Israel. That final week is for Israel. It's not for the church. At the heart of the entire pre-trib, post-trib argument, as well as many of the kingdom discussions and a lot of the end times things, is whether or not there is a distinction between Israel and the church. By and large, those who don't see the Lord coming for the church prior to the tribulation don't see a distinction between Israel and the church, or they see the church replacing Israel. Now, I won't say that's 100% the case, but generally, that's where that view comes from. As we looked... In our Daniel study, specifically when we were in chapter 9, we saw 70 weeks of Daniel were for whom? Israel and Jerusalem. As we talked about earlier, the first 69 weeks have come and gone, ending with the Messiah being cut off. And we are now waiting for that time when the 70th week will be here. In between, during this cut-off time, we have the church age. The plan for Israel and Jerusalem has been put on hold during that church age time. The Messiah being cut off, his crucifixion, wasn't in the 70th week. It was after the 69th week. Now, he has come, he died, he rose again, and he has ascended into heaven. The church wasn't revealed to Daniel. It wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. It was a mystery that was revealed after the program with Israel was put on hold. Then, when the tribulation begins, what signifies that? Antichrist making a covenant with whom? With Israel, with Daniel's people. The program and the plan will start back up again at that point in time, for that final week, when Israel is once again back in God's focus, like he was prior to Acts chapter 2 when the church was established. This period of time, when God's attention is on the church and not on Israel, we find that in passages like Romans chapter 11. And we've turned to Romans 11 a few times. And we've spent time going there and seeing how Paul talks about how Israel has not been rejected. Branches have been grafted in. Salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. That is all until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and God will once again turn his attention back to Israel, back to his chosen nation. What will happen when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in? That's what we're talking about here. The end of that time period. When the fullness of the Gentiles come in, when God turns his attention back to Israel, the time for the church will be complete. The church will be raptured. The church will be taken up out of the picture. Then the plan with Israel will resume. So that's really reason number one. The tribulation isn't for the church. And really that goes along with reason number two. And we it's kind of a visual depiction of this. Reason number two is that there's an absence of the church in chapters six through eighteen of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation covers the events of the 70th week of Daniel. And most of those events are in those chapters six through eighteen. In the first three chapters, the church is referred to 19 times. And then it's mentioned again once in chapter 22, in the very last chapter. In chapters 4 and 5, the church is found in heaven. They are represented by the 24 elders in heaven. And those elders are mentioned in chapters 7, 11, and 14 as well, but they are still in heaven when they're mentioned, around the throne of God. They are not on earth. But then, from, from chapter 6 through 18, with all of the events that are occurring on earth, there is no mention of the church in that time frame. Why? Because the church is not on earth at that point in time. Israel is on earth. Those who are being saved at that time are not part of the church. They will be a part of Israel. In the tribulation it will primarily be Jews being saved. Now, that's not to say that Gentiles can't or won't be saved, but the focus of that time period is on Israel, like it was in the Old Testament. Israel was primarily God's focus. His plan was on Israel. There were Gentiles saved during that time, but it was primarily Israel. So why isn't the church mentioned in those chapters? Because the church will be gone. Where? They will be up in heaven with Christ. It will be during this time that the Bema Seat Judgment will take place. That will happen during that period. The church will become the bride of Christ, returning with him at the end of the tribulation when the wedding feast will take place. And that's found in Revelation 19. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 4, where we see what takes place after the letters to the seven churches in the first three chapters in Revelation. Just look at verse 1 of Revelation 4. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I, was heard, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Now John is being shown what's going on here. And as he's being shown this here in these verses, he's taken up into heaven. Now the scene changes for him. And his perspective from this point is that he is in heaven, seeing the things going on there. And he's looking down to see what's going on down on the earth. So I would say here that John is a part of the church is in heaven, which is where the church is at this time as well. There's a perspective from John seeing these things going on because that's, where john would be at that point in time i'm not saying that john was part of the rapture at that moment in time but from the perspective that god is showing him showing these things that's what john's perspective would be that's what the church's perspective would be looking down at the events of what's happening with relation to israel okay we need to keep moving third reason the church has promised deliverance from god's wrath and Josh, you can change to the next slide now if you, if you want to. It doesn't give a whole lot more than what we have here. but The time of the tribulation is the time of God's wrath upon the earth. I meant to have this slide a couple of times in our Daniel study, but I don't think, I think miscommunication and not getting it here, I don't think we ever saw it. So here's another pretty slide. The time of the tribulation is the time of God's wrath upon the earth. There are different actors in play that will be causing chaos. Antichrist, Satan gives him his power, but keep in mind they are God's instruments during this time. All the things that are poured out on the earth are a part of God's wrath, not Satan's wrath on the earth. This is God's wrath upon the earth. In the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 6, we have the beginning of these judgments happening. You have the seals, you have the trumpets. After the three and a half years, you have the, uh, the bowls going on. Um, they are all gradually get worse and worse and worse, and the situation gets more and more extreme and dire upon the earth. In chapter 3 of Revelation, if you're still in Revelation, look over in chapter 3. As Jesus is giving instructions to the churches, he tells the church at Philadelphia in in verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. What he's talking to the church at Philadelphia about here, this is not a localized testing for just the church at Philadelphia, but it's a testing, he says, that is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Several times in the book of Revelation, the same phrase is used over and over again for those who dwell on the earth. And it's used to talk about just that. This is everyone on the earth he's talking about here. So this verse isn't talking about a trial that's about to come upon just this church at Philadelphia or even trials that come upon the church in general. It's referring to the wrath that God is about to pour out upon the earth that John gets and then gives details of in the coming chapters of this book. I know people take this verse and they say it doesn't point to being raptured before the tribulation. They will say that it either means it's just a promise to keep the church from trials in general that say that, oh, this just means that God will just work us, work through, help us work through any trials Or they'll say that it's a promise to protect people through the tribulation. But neither of those can really be the case. It's not talking about trials for just the churches because it talks about the whole world. So the scope is much bigger than that. And it's not talking about preserving believers through the tribulation because, quite frankly, believers are going to die in the tribulation. There is going to be a lot of suffering in the tribulation by believers. Revelation 20 verse four tells us that those who were beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus during the tribulation will be resurrected. So if believers are dying in the tribulation, then just how are they being kept from that hour if this means that they're being preserved through it? The answer is that that's not what this means. It means that the church will not be there Those who are saved during the tribulation, those who are martyred during the tribulation, um, not all of them, but many of them, uh, because they, they did not believe prior to the rapture. They missed the rapture, and they will already be living through this time. So anyone that's a believer during the tribulation became a believer after the church was raptured. You look at passages in the Old Testament on the day of the Lord, which the tribulation is definitely a part of, and it's clear that it's a time of judgment for the world. Isaiah thirteen eleven says, thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. It's, it's a judgment for the world. Keep in mind, when this time starts, right after the rapture, after the rapture occurs, at this point in time, there is not a single believer on earth. There will not be a single person. Day one after the rapture, there is no one who believes in Jesus Christ on the face of the earth. Then God pours out judgments. These judgments start, and God is going to start pouring out his wrath. Will people be saved? Absolutely they will. God will preserve the gospel. People will believe. Revelation 7 talks about the 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel that will be preserved, as well as the multitude that is saved during the tribulation. But these will be people who were unsaved at the beginning of the tribulation and are saved during it. When the tribulation begins, it is poured out upon an unbelieving world, and by God's sovereign grace, the events of that time will drive people to him in salvation. It's not a time for the church, which is why Jesus tells the church in Revelation 3.10 that the church will be kept from that time, will be kept out of that time. When we will be gone before that time comes. We won't take the time to look there, uh, but you can also jot down 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, right after the passage we looked at earlier with the rapture, the beginning of chapter 5, Paul talks about the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. It will come upon people suddenly. It will be a surprise. But in verse 9, he reassures them. He reassures the Thessalonian church that we are not destined for wrath. In the context there, he's talking about the wrath that comes with the day of the Lord. Because what's he just been reminding them of in that passage? The rapture. We will be caught up with Christ in the clouds taken back to heaven. Okay, moving along to another one. We might just get to one more. There has to be a gap between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. There has to be. Why? Because in the millennial kingdom, don't have it up there, but the millennial kingdom is off to the side after these events, right? But in the millennial kingdom, people will die, people will rebel, although it won't be anything like it is today, but it will happen. Death and rebellion will be rare. Anyone that dies will be seen as accursed. Any open acts of sin will be dealt with immediately as Jesus rules from the throne with a rod of iron. But at the end of the millennium, we see in Revelation 20 that Satan is bound for a 1,000 years. Then he will be released at the end of that time, there will be an uprising. He will deceive the nations, gather people together for war, and they will be consumed with fire from heaven. That's all seen in Revelation twenty seven through 10. Now, if Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, and the church goes through the tribulation, if we go with a post-trib view, and the rapture occurs just as he comes back, And all believers at that time are caught up with him. So everyone of us, everyone in the church, everyone that believes during the tribulation, all come up with him are caught up with him at that time. The dead are raised with him and we are all changed and we are all given glorified bodies. Then after that, we all walk into the kingdom together, everyone in a glorified body. Then the question is, who are these people gathered from the nations that will rebel at the end of the millennium? Keep in mind, in our glorified bodies, we will neither marry nor are given in marriage. Jesus tells the disciples that in Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 20. There are no families being created by people in glorified, resurrected, glorified, changed bodies. So if everyone coming out of the tribulation has either been resurrected or changed while still alive, who are these people in the millennial kingdom who rebel against God? Or who die before the age of 100 and are considered cursed. You see, there have to be people that go through the tribulation, that when they stand before Jesus at the sheep and goats' judgment, they are found to be the sheep and are allowed to go into the kingdom still in their non changed, non glorified bodies. And what will those people do in the kingdom? They'll have children. It's their children who will be the ones who will still need to accept Jesus as Lord or, as in the case of the ones that we're talking about, won't accept him as Lord and will end up rebelling at the end of that 1,000 years. There has to be time between the rapture when people are resurrected and changed in the twinkling of an eye and the second coming so that people still in physical bodies can be saved and we'll end up having children in the millennial kingdom. And the fifth reason, if we can get to the fifth one. So there has to be that gap in time. The fifth one, the imminent return of the Lord. The Bible talks about the imminent return of the Lord. Now, the New Testament is very clear that the Lord's return could be at any time. That's what we call imminent. That doesn't mean that it's soon necessarily. Paul was waiting for it 2,000 years ago and it hasn't happened yet, right? But it could be at any time. He told people that it could happen at any time. It could be today, it could be in an hour, it could be tomorrow. We don't know, but it could be at any time. We looked at this verse earlier, Philippians uh, 3.20, where Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we doing? How do we live? We live eagerly waiting for the Lord's return, right? He's talking about anticipating the Lord's return and living as if the Lord could return at any time. Philippians 4, 5 says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near or he's at hand. These words are meant to convey to us a way in which we are to live. We are to live as if the Lord could be here at any time because he could be here at any time. He is near, he is at hand. Now, if he's not really coming until the end of the tribulation, a clearly defined seven-year period of time that has definite markers for the beginning and the midpoint, then that makes the imminent part of his return, the at-hand part, makes it a little further away. Well, the Lord is always seven years out is what we would have to live like, right? Because we would be looking for the events that occur at the beginning of the tribulation and then we would say, well, the Lord's return now is seven years away because that's what would have to be So even even if you go with the mid-trib view, you would have to say it's at least three and a half years out because there's going to be definite, the the covenant with Israel is going to be a definite sign at the beginning of that time. Look over with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll turn to just one more verse here. We'll need to wrap this up quickly. Remember, the Thessalonians were enduring much tribulation. Not the tribulation, but trials From those around them. He mentions that in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. But then he says that the church at Thessalonica has been an example to others, those in Macedonia and Achaia and in other places. Look at what he says down in verse 9. He says, "...for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God." from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And you see what they are known for. They are known as those who are waiting for his son, who are waiting for the return of Christ. But note, he also says that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, many take that to mean just salvation. But as believers, we have that already already. They aren't waiting for that. The idea here, as well as what we see here in the context of the epistle, is that the Thessalonians were asking questions about the Lord's return. They're asking questions about the time of the tribulation. And remember, that's why he tells them about the rapture in chapter 4. They're concerned that maybe the dead will miss his return for the church. So they're not waiting for Jesus to return at his second coming after the man of lawlessness, after the seven year tribulation. They're waiting for him to return to rescue them from that time, to remove them from that time when they would have to endure the tribulation because they understood from Paul's previous teaching to them that they would not have to go through that. There are other passages that show this. Titus 2, 11 through 13 talks about living righteous lives as we're looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our Savior. 1 John 3, 2, when he appears, we will be like him. That's talking about us being changed when he appears at that same time. So those are the points, we're out of time, we're over time. So those are the points that I want to cover with you over this. Um, I know there might still be some questions. It's a fairly extensive topic, and I tried to cover as much of it as I could. Um, I know there may be some other questions that people have. But I believe overall that when you take the word literally and you have a proper perspective on the differentiation of God's plan for Israel and the church, you're really left with only the pre-trib view of the rapture being consistent with all the points that are laid out in scripture for it. Keep in mind, there isn't any one passage that covers it all. Um, Therefore, there isn't any one passage that you can hang your hat on and say, see, this is the verse. This is the one. Um, It would have been nice if the Lord had given that to Paul or to John or any of the other apostles, sure. Uh, but he didn't. It didn't work out that way. The revelation of rapture was revealed at different times in different pieces, but I believe if you take a step back and look at it as we have, because we do have it all, all that God wanted us to have, the pre-trib rapture makes the most sense. Let's close in a word prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to study your word and pray, Lord, that you would just help to give us understanding into it. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us now as we go from here, go into the next hour. We pray for Josh as he brings us the word and we just pray, Lord, that uh, the rest of our morning would honor and glorify you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.